we got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the dim. It go down. It go down in the dim. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by not one, but two co-hosts. First, my conservative counterpart, Cleveland area attorney and Defender of Freedom, Jay Carson, as well as political scientist Ryan Teton. Welcome, guys. Hey, good morning, Mike. Thanks for having me, Mike. It's rare that we're able to do three-person shows, but every once in a while, the, the stars align in such a way that we can, and so that happened this week, and I know listeners tend to enjoy those, and so we're happy to be able to do that, and it is a week where we have an awful lot to talk about. There's that Trump indictment that we finally got a chance to see, some really important elections for the Wisconsin Supreme Court, as well as the mayor of Chicago, some uh, big stories about transgender policy and a bunch more. And we are going to get to all of that in just one second. Okay, so before we do get to those stories I mentioned, I should say that you know, we typically record the show either Friday afternoon or Saturday morning. We're doing this one Saturday morning. And so when the news breaks on Friday, especially late Friday, we usually have to hold off on discussing it until the next week because when we feel it's important to take our time and consider what happened, the reactions to it, as opposed to just sort of giving our off-the-cuff, largely uninformed opinions, you know, kind of like how you get everywhere else when big stories break, uh, which I say this because that's why we're going to be holding off on discussing at least the substance of the preliminary ruling invalidating the FDA's 23-year-old approval of the abortion pill Mifepristone by District Court Judge Matthew Kaczmarek, who stayed his Friday evening ruling for a week to give the FDA time to request that the Fifth Circuit uh, rule on it. Now, just after Kaczmarek's decision came down, another district court judge, Thomas Rice, issued his own ruling in a separate case on the same issue, ordering that the FDA keep Mifepristone available, which sets up a conflict that will most likely end up at the Supreme Court. Now, Kaczmarek is a Trump-appointed judge and is the sole district court judge in his area, and he's been something of a go-to guy since he's been appointed for conservatives who hope to have a favorable initial ruling and maybe get a nationwide injunction halting things they're opposed to. And it's a kind of a much more targeted type of forum shopping, and that's where a party bringing suit files in a certain area because they think they're likely to get a more sympathetic judge if 
that you know, assigned to them. And so if you file in the Amarillo division of the Northern Texas district, well, Kaczmarek's your only guy, the only judge in that division. And so you know exactly who you're getting, which is why the case ended up with him and was filed in that division. Judge Rice, on the other hand, is an Obama appointee who issued his ruling in a case in which a coalition of 12 Democratic states sued the FDA to force the agency to remove all remaining restrictions on Mifepristone. And why did they bring suit in the Spokane Division of the Eastern District of Washington? Well, same reason, most likely because all three of the judges serving in that division are Democratic appointees. So they were pretty much guaranteed of getting uh, one of their judges, if you will, to issue a nationwide injunction that they wanted. So, Jay, you know, as I mentioned, none of us has had enough time to get into the cases or the rulings themselves. I know you've done a good amount of thinking about both forum shopping and the practice of district court judges issuing orders that apply across the country and not just to the parties in the case before them. So I thought we could start off with with your thoughts on that in general. So, uh, yeah, I, I will say I, I have not read either decision to the extent they're even available. Right. I, I, I looked and I all I keep finding is just here's the you know, here's an order. Um, that may have changed by the time we've recorded now, but, um, on, on forum shopping, I guess that's one of those as, as a practicing attorney, right. As a practicing conservative attorney, um, this is one of those, those questions that's, uh, I mean, I don't want to say it's a, um, open secret type thing, but, but it's sort of common sense. There are, there are some districts where, uh, you think your arguments would be better received than others, um, and that goes that goes both ways. Um, um, if if you're you know if you were to ask me just you know uh, hypothetically on any case that involves some sort of uh, ideological question, um, uh, you know, so would you <clears throat> would I rather be in the the uh, Fifth Circuit or the Ninth Circuit? I'm going to say the Fifth Circuit every time. Uh, if you asked uh, 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 Ken that same question, he would say Ninth Circuit every time. Um, and and the, there's there's sort of a, just a reality there, right, that you can't get around. So there's, you know, in in, um, uh, in the law, there is this uh, forum shopping is, is looked down upon as a, sort of a, a dirty business. Um, uh, that said, um, you know, if you're if your job is to maximize the return for your client to try to get the best results you can, um, you naturally look to, because in some cases, it's not just a matter of, uh, say, the judge, uh, right? But it's, it's you know, the substantive law in, in different uh, appellate districts can be different, um, which like it, like it just is, where it's, it's, going, to, it's going to be different, like in, the, in you know, next, by next week, I assume, um, in the fifth and the ninth. Um, so there's, there's nothing wrong with, with picking a place that, that has the better substantive law. Um, the other the other piece of this is there's forum shopping and there's forum shopping. Um, if you've got a a reasonable uh, claim that that's a, a forum where the case can be brought, uh, and a lot of times when we're talking about nationwide questions, that sort of opens up the possibility of well you you can probably bring it anywhere because you can you can sue the uh, the federal government uh, anywhere, um, and in this case you could you could find a plaintiff anywhere. Um, so it's it's a little different than say um you know there was a uh, there were issues back in the 
oh, early 2000s, 1990s, um, where there were what were called in the litigation hellholes, right? Um, where a lot of plaintiffs' attorneys would bring suits in one specific small, and in this case, uh, you know, they were uh, state court um, um, uh, places. Missouri was was uh, notorious. Um, bring class actions there, uh, and again, where there was very little connection to the actual district itself, um, but it provided uh, a, a a good uh, good place to, um, you know, favorable law, favorable uh, judges. Um, so, I mean, I, I think that's a little different than when you've got something that's necessarily a national question. Um, I, you know, I, I guess it might, the, the, my default answer, and this is going to come off as, is not a good answer, but well, look, you've got to bring it somewhere. Um, if you're going to file sure. that suit, uh, you might as well bring so, it where you're more likely to get, uh, as long as you can find a legitimate, a legitimate, uh, plaintiff exactly. who has standing. Yeah. Sure. I mean, yeah, yeah. It, it, it becomes with, with, as the, you know, when you get into the questions where, uh, you know, more often it's it's you know whether a company did business or something like that. But again, the federal government's doing business everywhere. Um, when it becomes more and more attenuated, and more and more that have to reach to get that, it really looks like you're getting trying to get to a um, uh, different different place uh, than perhaps ought to be the logical place to bring it. That's when it's concerned the forum shop to come in. I, I was actually amazed, Mike. This is you know when I was in law school, my civil procedure class. Um, uh, my my professor, who is now who now sits on the uh, Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, um, uh, and with whom I would would ideologically disagree probably on almost everything. Um, I mean, it was a, it was a, the whole first half of the class was how do you make sure you don't get stuck in state court and how do you get a case to federal court, right? It, it was so it was almost you know that's what I mean. There's a little bit of hypocrisy about uh, in the law. So, oh, you know, we, forum shopping, we look down upon it, but. Uh, at the same time, yeah, you you got to bring it somewhere. Yeah, and l- let's move on to that question of nationwide injunctions. And Ryan, I, maybe you can start off on this. And as I mentioned, that's a, that's a, it's a fairly common practice, and some lament that. Most notably, I would say uh, I, Justice. I it. Ju- yeah, Justice Thomas as well. Me and Justice Thomas. So so Jay Jay and Justice Thomas lamented. Ryan, uh, do you do you join Jay and Justice Thomas in in lamenting nationwide injunctions? I will say that my expertise is is far below that of Jay, so please uh, forgive any mistakes made in that regard. But uh, especially when you're looking at a nationwide application of any of these, I think he's completely right. One about having to shop it to a, a court that might give you the best benefit. I mean, you know, we were talking about that last week, given the indictment of Trump and which of the charges would carry the best. So, I mean, I think that's the first one. The second one. Um, with a national injunction, um, boy, uh, from my perspective, you know, this kind of chips away at the individual applications that we allow through federalism to each of the states by immediately stopping it everywhere all at once. But it seems like it's a uh, an issue that needs uh, the consideration, the full consideration. So, you know, I'm, I, I don't want to waffle here, <laughs> but but on this one, um, I, I think it's early to see exactly what the end goal is for anything involved here. It it just exploded on a Friday night and it seems like there's some chest steps that we're missing quite yet. Jay, what about what about your thoughts on you? And you can channel Justice Thomas if you want. I'm yeah. sure you're pretty good it at is, that. It is lamentable, Mike. <laughs> um, no, I, 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 I think Ryan's right there on the um, there. There's sort of a, a judicial federalism that's kind of built into our system. Right. Um, and I, I don't think the founders envisioned 
um, district court judges uh, being able to, and again, stuff happened at sort of a slower pace, you know, back then, um, uh, that a district court judge could could just uh, uh, issue an injunction that would govern uh, the entire country, and you get then you get into the sort of the strange uh, race of district court judges to enjoin or or unenjoin uh, the federal government. Um, so I, I think that's a problem. And I think there, there's a solution to it. Is is that you know with the way it works with the rest of the law that uh, you can have an injunction, but it's only enforceable as to that district or as to that circuit. At which point there's a there's a process, and you go through, and you have different circuits come up with uh, different uh, approaches, different decisions, and it bubbles up to the Supreme Court, uh, and then you get a final ruling there. And to, to some extent, I, I would say that's you know that's a feature, not a bug. Um, uh, now that that whole circuit system, right? That um, is not built into the Constitution. That's that's statutory. That was created uh, early on. Um, but uh, it 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 makes sense, uh, right? That there is there is this idea that you on these big questions, it makes sense to get uh, different eyes on the problem. And and in some in some cases, and this is going to sound weird, you can have circuit splits that exist for decades, right? Um, because the look, the one question comes up somewhere in the the ninth district, comes up differently on in the sixth circuit, uh, or ninth circuit, sixth circuit, and. Uh, Nobody else challenges it. The rule stays the same. The Supreme Court doesn't seem seem uh, see the need to take cert because they say, ah, this isn't that big a case, or we're just not ready for it. Um, and and it all works out, right? Um, and and you get that kind of judicial federalism, if you will. Now, there's there's the the opposite argument that well, the law ought to be easy to understand and uniform across the across the country, especially federal law. Um, and there's a lot to be said for that. Um, but, you know, that's there, there's also, you know, the Supreme Court can only do so much at, at one time and they take the they take the cases they're interested in when they think those cases are are worthy of being heard. Yeah, there's also, of course, sense. the raw the raw political argument of we want what we want. and We want it now. We want it to apply everywhere. And, you know, it used to be the case where conservatives as a rule were against judicial activism. But it turns out that they're, they're only really against liberal judicial activism and conservative judicial activism. Well, give us more of that, please. Uh, so. So, yeah, not, not surprising. Well, Mike, Go ahead. Sorry, right. I was going to no. ask Jay then. Um, on that topic, you know, is is a circuit split more desirable or less? Because as I'm as I'm looking through at especially our circuit courts and our circuit court judges, we see that more and more social policy and these major issues are being um, decided and explored within the court system when Congress decides to take its hands away from it or it's an election year or an election's coming in the next 10 years or yeah. kind of a joke, but not really. And so it, it, we're seeing kind of a wave. Uh, I don't know if, if you agree or not, but in the study of the judicial system, it used to be always behind this uh, magic curtain that no one got to peek beside. And then and then suddenly slowly have Supreme Court justices coming out and giving their positions on politics. But, you know, Ninth Circuit, we always have them in the mix. I mean, they're always going to uh, challenge absolutely everything that seems to come through. But when you start having other justices align on issues or uh, judges align throughout the country to then enforce a policy that I don't know, Jay, you know, is this something that uh, we've seen in the past or is this new where the circuit courts are going well? Come hell or high water, we can decide this uh, in the absence of anybody else guiding us. 
Well, I mean, that's that's generally the way the, the rule is, right? I mean, the circuit courts can decide it uh, absent the U.S. Supreme Court yeah. saying something to the contrary. Uh, and and there is uh, uh, authority from other circuit courts is is what's what we call persuasive authority, which means um, maybe you're persuaded by it. Maybe you're not. Um, uh, but it's not controlling authority. That means that, that you have to follow it. Um, and like I said, I, I think. We, we have seen more and more uh, of these social. Well, I, I shouldn't even say that social type issues. Uh, I think we've, we, we've seen a bunch of them this week. Yeah. <laughs> maybe that's maybe that's why it just seems like more. But um, of of, uh, of issues going to court. And I, I think you're right. A lot of it is uh, uh, legislative uh, failure. And uh, as Mike and I often complain about um, uh, regulatory overreach and so much more being done by by administrative agencies and the courts rather than through Congress. Um, but I mean, and, and again, most, a lot of times circuit splits, um, they aren't on these, you know, big fundamental social kind of questions. Um, it, it's yeah. usually some more arcane part of law. And, and I'm always, you know, I'm, I'm always like, you know, I mean, as attorney, like you're dying to find a circuit split, right? Uh, you know, that then you can, you know, go to the U.S. Supreme Court and say, look, court, this is something you have to decide because we've got these two competing yeah. uh, uh, ideas out there and we need you to settle it. Um, uh, so I, I think in the courts have have. Uh, um, so, for example, there's there's a case that's uh, coming up. Um, uh, Tyler versus Hennepin County, and we'll talk about that probably in a couple couple weeks, months. Um, Whatever, but but it would involve, uh, I, I think, uh, some circuit split stuff. It involves taking questions, um, but there have been similar cases like that that have been, um, you know, people have tried to get cert on, and the court just hasn't taken and hasn't taken it. And a lot of times, you know, the court takes cases. One, you can say, yeah, part of it, it's it's ideological and um, maybe maybe big I ideological of of you know some sort of movement or small I ideological of this is a question we'd like to we're interested in. Um, but also, I think they look at the cases in terms of how clean is the record, right? How if we're going to make a decision, yeah. uh, is this the case we want to do it on? The, the, you know, the facts or there are weird procedural bounces here that, uh, you know, the adage that, that uh, uh, you know, the close cases make bad law kind of thing. Um, so, so, yeah, I, I don't think there's circuit splits in and of itself is, are a bad thing. Um, I think it's it's kind of been baked into our system and allows ideas to kind of, you know, percolate and, and have those arguments across. And a lot of times you'll have, um, you know, it'll build up where you've got here's four or five circuits who've gone this way, you know, uh, three or four have gone the others uh, other way and a couple that, that are uh, undecided. Um, so. And I think that causes a little confusion. When it's sorry about that, you know, the when they discuss it on the news and you tune in, um, it gets muddled because it's OK. It, it seems like we have judicial activism, but why are they mentioning Josh Hawley's name? Is he involved here? And now he's claiming oversight because congressional oversight of FDA has, you know, and so yeah. I, I think not having those clearly laid out has people going, okay, is Josh Hawley working with the court? What's going on? So I, I think Jay, you did a, a really good job of kind of pairing that apart from the 
the political mush that it tends to get mixed in with. Yeah, I don't know what the, the Josh Hawley would have anything to do with it. Um, yeah, right. you know, from, from a legal legal standpoint, right? right? No, exactly. Yeah, he can he can invade all he wants against the administration or the FDA uh, regarding a political resolution. And, yeah. You know that that's his job. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean Josh Hawley, or I suppose obviously he could if he if he were interested could file an amicus brief or something in, in yeah. any of those courts. Um, but yeah, he's not a party, and he's you know, so. Yeah. You know, guys, one other thing I was hoping we could get to before we uh, looked at the Trump indictment was was something from last week. Actually, Uh, Ryan and I were discussing AI regulation. And one of the things we talked about was legislators and regulators who are not necessarily up to speed with modern technology. You know, the Internet is made up of tubes kind of thing. So and, and at one point, Ryan commented on net neutrality as an kind of as an example of this. And he said, they're still treating the Internet as a utility and taxing it the same way just because of that stupid net neutrality thing that went through and just gutted the Internet. And I understood what he meant. At least I thought I did. But some listeners were hoping for some clarification on this. They're wondering, for instance, was was Ryan referring to the FCC's 2015 open Internet order that passed the net neutrality regulations or the 2017 Restoring Internet Freedom Order in which the Trump era FCC rolled back those 2015 rules? And and in either case, how Ryan felt that this uh, gutted or at least hurt uh, the the Internet. Internet. Yeah. 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 And I, I apologize for mixing those metaphors. Um, it's interesting after I've been teaching for so long, uh, I forget that these are long periods of time that are all, uh, both smashed together here. So let me, let me give a little bit more explanation, Mike, if I can. Um, the first time I got involved with it was, you know, about 2010 and we're seeing the innovation of the iPhone and the development of 3G, 4G, 5G, et cetera. And so you did have the, federal appeals court that went before the FCC in 2014-15. And what they're looking for there was net neutrality, basically the uh, proposal that uh, fast lanes could not be throttled down, um, that data was and speed was free for all. And I think that's the important point here. When we're looking at my reference to it being treated as a utility uh, in terms of communication, then we go back to our first communication. So if we're looking at telephone, then it used to be charged by the line and then it was charged by the minute. And then as um, technology began to expand, our telecommunications uh, providers began to try and figure out how am I gonna keep that charge? And so when people started moving into text, it was okay, we'll we'll charge by the text. Well, that got ridiculously expensive and put a lot of high schoolers in parent jail very quickly. And then as we started seeing that people aren't even talking on the phones and you're not charging for minutes and you're not charging for long distance and you're not charging for texts, the only thing really left to provide from a a communication provider is going to be that Internet speed. It's access. Um, It's the ability to dip into what is there. Net neutrality um, enabled uh, or I guess it prevented the individual corporations from throttling speeds down because they did not have a corporate relationship or agreement with a certain entity. And by that, I think I used an example, um, AT&T hooks up with Disney or Verizon hooks up with Netflix, et cetera. And so um, when it was originally passed, it meant that we would be protecting the speed and the access, um, which informationally, uh, that's what we want. We want the speed. Uh, I mean, hell, uh, China has light bulbs now that you can plug into any source and they will provide Wi-Fi um, to try and get it to their rural communities. 
Um, so, so we need it. We're not going to go backwards. Um, but what happened was in 2017, uh, they basically ruled uh, a Jeep pie, uh, came in and reversed Obama era net neutrality. Um, and basically said that ISP providers could make deals with, um, internet sites, uh, and other uh, communication providers to give faster services. Um, and so if we look at the small print at the bottom of many of our agreements, it says that, uh, should you access a internet provider or a media provider, or maybe you didn't make friends with YouTube or have a deal with YouTube TV, that they can throttle speeds down on your access to those. Um, in addition, uh, that's where we see the extra costs because it was then in 2017 re-regulated as kind of a communication. Um, when you get that bill, you're going to get a local tax. You're going to get a national communications tax. You're going to get stuff tacked on that you didn't even want. Um, a spectrum, for example, if you're in this area, if you're just ordering Internet, they charge you for TV, too, because, well, they're providing it to you, and that's the communication you ordered. Well, no, it's not. But, again, because they are free to kind of determine their agreements and the speeds that they provide, um, it's done a great disservice, I think, because access now has got to come through millions of different portals, whether it's Peacock Plus or NBC Plus or Paramount Plus or say everything has to have. Here's your access without ads to get to this. Um, and so it has just uh, it's produced a multitude of access points for the same information. Some will be faster depending on who your provider is and some will be slower. And I think um, that is such a step backwards. So that is what I was lamenting, Mike, was was more the reversal of net neutrality, was the ability to um, start treating it or to keep treating it as a utility. And then also in that fine print to realize that uh, the corporations themselves have the ability to throttle down consumer speed should they feel like it. Got it. And Jay, I remember when we were talking about this back in the early days of the podcast, when we were looking at those uh, reversal of the net neutrality in 2017 that I seem to recall that I came out much more uh, kind of along the lines of where Ryan is. And you actually, I believe, were much more in favor of what the FCC uh, ended up doing. Right. And maybe you could if I have that correct, maybe you could just kind of talk about briefly the uh, uh, the main reasons why you would disagree with 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 both me and with Ryan on this one. So. So, yeah, that, I think that's. And again, I'm, I, I didn't know net, net, I didn't know net neutrality would be on the quiz. Um, <laughs> it's been a while since I, I thought about it. Um, but but no, I mean my point uh, back then, and, and again without having listened to the listened to the tapes, um, was that as Ryan points out, this was, has been now is the way for uh, providers to monetize what what they're giving, right? Um, and having that ability to to make those those deals to um, to monetize the the um, the, the data, uh, what that does is is creates an incentive for them to create more and faster channels. Uh, and I I think that you know if there's a profit motive out there for companies to build better networks, um, you know if they can make a profit through doing that, I I think that's a good thing because I think that benefits everyone. Uh, in the long run, in terms of if you look at compared to where we were, um, Mike, when you and I were in college, you know, remember like dividing up the 
the long distance bill with with your roommates and figuring out who made which calls and <laughs> you know and now you can you can pick up any phone and, and you, the whole idea of long distance right it it just it's it, it's you know uh, our kids don't even know what that means um uh, so so yeah i i think that it, i'm i'm opposed to putting um uh, artificial um uh, blockades right preventing uh, companies from from doing something and being able to monetize it because when you take away that that profit motive that also takes away their motive to expand the um the services right. generally right yeah and and i i will i will close this, this segment with with my view which of course is the correct view and that is that jay <laughs> you would be right uh, in instances where there is any sort of real competition, because there's not really much of a motive necessarily to increase services or increase quality when you're a monopolist. And that's been a big part of this debate. Now, if we take a look, for instance, at the FCC's definition of broadband, which is at least 25 megabytes uh, per second down and 3 MB up, which, by the way, the GAO has said is about uh, – uh, definition that's about seven years out of date and that gets in maybe to the original conversation ryan and i had least uh ryan and i had last week about regulators being woefully out of step so if we actually take a reasonable definition of broadband 100 down 20 up around 37 percent of households have only one broadband option 34 have two options and around 18% only have three or more. So there's not a whole lot of competition, which means that there's not necessarily a whole lot of incentive for companies to provide the sort of innovations and services. We, we know that monopolists don't really have that incentive. And so unless there is that competition, and, and, and that's exactly why uh, the argument for treating the internet like a public utility, just like in a lot of you know cases with gas or electric, there is this government regulation that you don't see in other industries because it's understood that, well, you can't have 20 companies running wires or lines or anything like that. And you could say, well, 5G might be an answer. And that's true. But still, somebody has to maintain all those wireless towers and so forth. And so in the end, Jay, I think you would be right if we had real and robust competition in most, if not all of the country, but we're just not there yet. And uh, Mike, I would just. If I may, having been in Nebraska when we had COVID, um, one of the biggest issues that we had in that state was rural broadband. Um, and they are starting a new initiative to try and get that coverage. You know, Nebraska on those T-Mobile maps and stuff is usually the big gap in the middle of the country. Well, now you send uh, kids home because of COVID that are 200 miles from a town and tell them they need to do everything online, but can't provide any kind of internet to get to them. So I, I completely agree with Jay on that. If, you know, in these public sectors where they think they can make more money by increasing the speed, I think we'll see lots of innovation and improvement. But in those rural areas that they were getting really hit hard and and it seems unfathomable to come up with a, a time when we can't just plug in and access it. But um, so many of these rural areas the internet's the phone and that's it, you know? So now I, I, I appreciate you coming back on this subject for me, Mike. All right. Well, we want to move on to the Donald Trump indictment and we were get, we will start up on that in just one second. Okay. So on Tuesday, Donald Trump pleaded not guilty to 34, count them, 34 felony counts of falsifying business records connected to hush money payments to adult film actress Stormy Daniels in 2016. Now, on last week's show, Ryan and I talked about the announcement 
of the indictment. But at that point, the indictment itself hadn't been released and the former president hadn't been formally charged in court. Now, now we are at that point and we know that all 34 charges are related to specific instances of violating New York State Penal Law 175.10, which is falsifying business records in the first degree, a class E felony. That's the lowest level of felony charge, though each count carries up to a maximum of four years in prison. So in theory, at least, Donald Trump is facing up to a 136-year prison sentence if convicted on all counts for the maximum. But of course, that's not going to happen. He won't spend even a day behind bars. If you take a look at similar cases, a defendant of Trump's age with no prior convictions receives no prison time. And that's almost certainly what would happen here. Under state law in New York, to charge falsifying business records as a felony as opposed to a misdemeanor, it has to be proven that the records were falsified as part of an effort to conceal another crime or crimes. Now, the indictment itself doesn't specify what the other crime or crimes are, but District Attorney Alvin Bragg referred to both attempts uh, to evade uh, state taxes as well as violations of New York election law as those possible connected crimes. So Ryan and I talked about this this week. So, Jay, I want to give you the first shot at this. You've had a chance to take a look at the indictment. Give this some thought. Uh, what's your take? Um, so, yeah, I I think it's it's pretty weak sauce, uh, especially if you can't even name the other crime in the indictment. Uh, I think that's that's a problem. I think that that may be a fatal problem. Um, uh, so. Yeah, that's that's my my first take. Um, uh, I, I'm I'm concerned. I guess I, I'd also look to, um, you know, we didn't talk about the. You're asking strictly on the legal piece of it, not the political piece of it. But I think there's obviously has to be some overlap. And um, you know, again, my, my the question would be: Would would anyone else whose name isn't Donald Trump have been uh, charged with this? Um, and I'm 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 not even entirely sure. Um, you know, as a factual predicate, uh, if you're you're paying money to your attorney to uh, uh, pay money subject to an NDA and, and you market uh, legal fees, is that is that falsifying uh, uh, business records and falsifying your own business records? Um, I don't know. Those are going to be you know questions for the, the court and, and for the jury. But I think there's there are a lot of, of hurdles that uh, Alvin Bragg is going to have to get over. Um, uh, to you know, before he he would see uh, an actual, um, uh, you know, guilty right. uh, guilty verdict. Yeah, Ryan, what what's your take now that you've had a chance to take a look at the indictment? Oh, it just got wilder than it was last week. Now, uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, I want to talk about one of Jay's points first. I think he absolutely is correct in using the term weak sauce um, because when we're looking at uh, bringing something against a former president, you better make sure that your T's are crossed and I's are dotted. And that it is bulletproof and ironclad, especially when it's, uh, you know, making history uh, in that regard. Um, and, and the challenge, again, comes with the charges, which are incredibly weak, um, which, again, if it's not candidate Trump, are they brought against someone else? And from my perspective, you're buying information on yourself to prevent it from being purchased by others and used against you in a presidential election, which is commonplace. So can they penalize him for buying information on him himself 
to prevent his information from getting out there. And and I just say this because each time you jump over one hurdle, it, it's like uh, the DA has put 20 more in front of himself. Um, there's no teeth in it. Um, but at the same time, I guess what we, if you're looking at kind of the MAGA movement, um, you didn't see an uproar um, to the indictment that would be anywhere even close to January 6th. I think a lot of the news networks were were hoping for some kind of weird rioting or something to take place even in Florida, but it was muted. Um, it was much more uh, on script. And uh, down below when, in Florida, when Trump got uh, home and gave the address, um, it was teleprompted. It was much more like a television uh, address for a campaign commercial to be president than it was an incitement to any kind of action. Um, and I don't know if Trump is looking at that now and going, well, I'm not sure as many people are willing to protect me specifically as the <laughs> ideal that I put out there. So, um, yeah, I, I don't think it'll go through as something uh, major that would even affect him running for office in 2024. And I, I think it's odd that nationally um, they didn't put together kind of a, a better platform or organizational structure to how they were going to deal with him once he left office. Yeah, you know, on the legal aspects of it, there actually is a, a certain amount of bipartisan agreement. Uh, Dan McLaughlin, who wrote in, who's writing in the National Review, National Review said, uh, to call this thin gruel is an insult to thin gruel, which I thought was pretty good. Yeah, yeah. But, but then you, know, you have, you have, uh, Jed Sugarman, who's a law professor, wrote in the New York Times. He characterized it as a disaster, uh, a setback for the rule of law, establishing a dangerous precedent for prosecutors. So on the legal, I think everyone can agree legally. This is a this is a weak case at best. But let's turn to the politics, because, like, for instance, there were reports of Trump while, while there weren't, weren't riots or huge demonstrations of, of millions in the streets, that sort of thing. Uh, but there were reports that Donald Trump raised at least seven million dollars since the indictment was announced. His polling lead over Ron DeSantis seems to have widened since then. So you can make a case that this is perhaps a good thing politically for Donald Trump. And not only that, I would argue that you could see this as maybe a no-lose strategy for Brad, because even if he doesn't get a conviction, which I'm thinking he won't, uh, he still gets to say, I'm the first person to actually indict Donald Trump. And that that's really good to a progressive Democratic audience. Uh, and, and, and so I think that might help him as in addition to helping Donald Trump in the Republican primary. Now, you can make an argument that uh, Democrats are all for that because it gives Biden a second go at someone he's already defeated. And that's even before J the January 6th Capitol riot and a 34 count criminal indictment. So I, there are a lot of political angles here. Uh, what do you think, Ryan? Which one of these, or are there others that you want to comment on about the politics of this? No, no, that was perfect. Uh, I mean, you, you've you introduced what, probably for him, for Donald Trump, uh, this will resort in, or this will result in, in little more than um, extended legal proceedings at some point. So it reinforces his entire position of they're coming to get me with stuff that doesn't stick. And this is a witch hunt. So he had already used that rhetoric. Um, and now you've got Bragg who kind of laid it out for him that that is the case. Uh, and again, with Bragg being good in New York, I think this is kind of a parallel to what we're seeing in Congress right now is that, uh, you know, he's good there because he's taking care of it in New York. Bragg has. But those other DAs and the other lawyers throughout the rest of the country that were bringing cases against Trump are going great. 
now it's going to make our entire job much more difficult because uh, we won't even try it unless we know that it's sure handed after what's coming in here. So I don't know. Um, I, I don't think it will hurt him in the end in 2024 um, unless we see something pretty major come out of here. But it didn't seem like it riled up the base as much as it possibly could have. And I think that's a good sign for at least civility and democracy um, that maybe of the 14 Republicans who are throwing their hat into the mix, it's starting to um, give uh, Republicans a choice of who they might want to choose other than just being um, having to go behind one individual. Jave, what, what do you think? So um, a couple of things. I think I think uh, everybody's been right so far. Um <laughs> I, I would no, I, I and I, I do think to uh, it uh, uh, advantages Biden to the extent that uh, you would say uh, it elevates Trump uh, in a primary, and uh, he he is the uh, candidate that Biden knows he can beat. Yeah. Um, uh, so I, I think I think there's that. Does that work long term? I don't know. Um, and and also on on in terms of the you know demonstrations uh, riots or whatever, I, I think I mean the expectation is. Um, Conservatives in general just aren't very good at the uh, um, the demonstration and the, the riot. Uh, January sixth. There's a pretty big exception there, wouldn't you say? No, no, no. And but let me and let me. I'll tell you why. Um, again, it's it's got to be a uh, when you have something like that uh, that is national, right? That there is a place and a time, and everybody's got to be here, and this is the day. And um, uh, I suppose you can you can uh, rally it up enough people to to come and, and do something and also uh, and make it make it worthwhile. I mean, a lot of people uh, really thought that uh, they were going to defend democracy and they had to be there to defend democracy. Um, but Republicans just are, are not are not as, as good at the spontaneous protest. Um, you mean because just, think, they're all working at jobs, whereas all of us on the left are just going to yeah, take exactly. a break from you our bongs. Get, get and our, OK. And we don't have the we're not yeah well no that's that's part of it I think there's also just a geographic component right if you're in a, a big city and you've got a like big uh, city with a big college or something like that it's easy to um, you know rally up you know a couple hundred people um, which in reality a couple hundred people isn't that much uh, but on the you know can look like a lot um, they used to, they used to have um, protests of one one sort of another on public square in Cleveland that I could oversee from my office and there's always. Somebody always had a bongo drum, and that's the other thing. We just—I don't know any conservatives who have bongo drums to bring to the thing with them. But, um, uh, but so anyway, no. I, so I—I I I didn't expect that there would be sort of these mass uprisings anywhere, uh, just because there's there's no um, there's no structure, right, to get it to get it up there and get it going. Um, you know, maybe at some point down the road, um, you, you can they do that. But I, I think I think the other thing is a lot of conservatives. They look at this as, um, uh, again, this isn't of the same type of gravity as uh, if you feel rightly or wrongly, right? You know, they can be entirely incorrect uh, that election is being stolen from you. Um, so, yeah, and, and I think it's one of those as 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 the Trump campaign wears on, um, I think people may, again, begin to lose uh, the affinity for Trump just because of all the extra headaches that he brings with him. Right. Uh, and if you can get, if you can get Ron DeSantis, who's Trump without all this, um, they may, you know, prefer that, but, but in the short term, it certainly, yeah, gives him the bounce in terms of the, uh, the, the money raising. And because, yeah, I guess that's, that's kind of like my point, right. It's, 
much, much easier to say, all right, I think he's being treated uh, very unfairly, uh, as, as he would say. Um, uh, so, you know, I'm going to I'm going to send him 20 bucks uh, to his campaign fund. And there you go. But, uh, yeah, you're not going to get uh, get in your car, or your truck and drive somewhere and, you know, make a sign and the whole deal. You'll just send him the 20 bucks. One one other point I wanted to bring up is, and I'm not sure I necessarily believe this, but I, I think it's important to raise at least this this talk about how dangerous of, dangerous of a precedent this is. And I think some might make the case that well, there still has to be some sort of a plausible crime or crimes involved to really go after an opposite party politician. I mean, there is. It seems pretty obvious, at least. I certainly don't have many doubts that Stormy Daniels got paid a bunch of money to not talk about uh, her relationship with Donald Trump, right? So there's got to yeah. be a there's got to be. And the I mean, in the the night and, and ironically, the Ninth Circuit actually just upheld the order saying that uh, she's got to pay him back because she didn't honor her end of the, the deal. Well, I, there you go. So I mean, but that's there's yeah. got to be a there there. And so I guess what I'm thinking is that then. That isn't necessarily that dangerous of a precedent. It's not like it's not like Alvin Bragg is making stuff up out of whole cloth, right? It's he he's actually taking something and stretching it. But you need that thing there in the first place. And I would argue that Donald Trump in particular is uniquely positioned because it seems to me that he gets involved with a lot of shady, potentially shady legal gray area stuff. And so that makes it easier for prosecutors, whereas a more conventional politician doesn't necessarily provide that sort of opening for uh, even an, even a politically ambitious partisan prosecutor. And, and, and Jay, I wanted to get get your thought on that. And then and then, Ryan, you can chime in. So I, I would say it's it's almost more dangerous because I, I don't see much there there. Right. I mean, what he did was um, you, you can say certainly it's it's not uh, a laudable conduct um, uh, to pay off your your, you know, form star mistress, whatever. Um, but it's certainly legal. And he did it through a, a legal agreement uh, drafted by his lawyers and her lawyers. Um, courts, the, you know, the courts, the Ninth Circuit of all places has held that, yes, that, that was an enforceable agreement. Um, you know, the question is, well, did they, did he take care of it correctly in his bookkeeping internally um, by, by labeling it legal payments instead of, you know, writing on the, the check memo, uh, hush money to porn star, um, you know, and, or, or, or alternatively, I guess Bragg would, would argue uh, it should have been a campaign expense, which is what John Edwards got in trouble for. And I think the John Edwards case would have been stronger because, Using someone else's money they give to your campaign to pay off uh, your your porn star is is something different than using your own money uh, and not reporting it to your campaign. Um, so so that's that's what troubles me is that his his conduct taken by itself and and done by anyone else in the world would be completely legal. It's sort of Trump almost did it in light of the John Edwards case. Uh, Trump did it sort of the, the legal way, went out of his way. Um, not to um, uh, pay it through a campaign fund. Um, and, uh, you know, damned if you do, damned if you don't. Um, so I guess that, that's my concern is that um, you're, you're right in that uh, most candidates do, are not, do not present the, uh, the appealable target that Trump does, right, that opens himself up to all this stuff. Um, nor, though, do most candidates have the resources that Trump does to fight it. Uh, and I'm, I'm concerned about um, you know, down downstream, right? The the congressional candidate or the 
the the state rep candidate or something and uh, there's a local prosecutor who who doesn't like him and says, hey, well, we think there are some business irregularities um, that you've got going on. Um, that person isn't going to have the legal team, the money uh, to, to fight uh, the charge. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, it's 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 more just a chilling effect uh, than, oh, hey, if I run for office, could I be opened up the prosecution by somebody who's just looking to settle a score? Um, and I think that's I think that is a a a, a big concern um, in, in what it does nationally, because, look, there are a lot of Republicans out there uh, who are who have rightly rightly said, um, I mean, my my phone was I don't want to say blowing up, um, but, you know, pictures of Bill Clinton, uh, you know, ask different statutes of limitations. Um, yeah, and, and yeah, it, it, at some point. um so many moderate Republicans are always accused of being a rhino or bringing a knife to a gunfight. Um, and it's, it's tough to counter that criticism when you've got someone like Alvin Bragg who says, I'm going to indict someone on, on really weak charges uh, just because uh, I, I, I don't, I don't care for him or I, because I can score political points in doing so. But you're not uh, just to be clear, of course, that could work both ways. And I don't think may, well, uh, I don't think you're saying that this is something that Democrats would be more likely to do than Republicans. And if you are, I would certainly. No, no, I'm actually, okay. I'm saying, Mike, I'm saying quite the opposite. Gotcha. Okay. Um, I'm saying that um, there will be growing pressure on Republicans uh, and there will be Republicans who would take, take them up on this offer. Got it. Because it's sort of, if they're going to do it, why aren't sure. we? Sure. All right. Ryan, your thoughts? Uh, I I think that from I, I agree with uh, a lot of what Jay said, I think that um, from a 30,000 foot view, especially looking at the presidency, it sets a dangerous precedent of bringing uh, former office holders back into a limelight or dragging them into a state court. Uh, what I think we see with most of our presidential candidates is them kind of fade into the background after they uh, leave office. Most are more than happy to do it. They look like they've been through about three world wars by the time they get done of those four years or eight years at the most. Um, and many of them have paused legal issues um, that are ongoing from either their uh, being a governor or being a lawyer or uh, more often than not how they raise money under the FEC. Um, there will be fines that they will have to settle. There will be court cases that will have to determine whether it was uh, gathered legally or not. And so uh, many will come out and then have other litigation or legal cases that they will have to deal with on the backside. Um, maybe as weak as this, something like that, that has to do with businesses, et cetera. Um, but I am concerned now, especially because of the media attention that this got, that it opens the door for any um, state to go after a former president if they don't like their partisanship um, yeah. and can bring them up. Because, I mean, you'll find something um, because politics are running for election or these kinds of things. Um, not every T is always crossed. Um, but will it be enough to impact them or is it, okay, well, Biden, you made my life hell as a Republican governor from Florida. And so once you're out of office, get ready because I'm dragging you down here uh, and we're going to take you to court for some of these policies you put through or something. So, yeah, that's that's more of my that's more of my caution on this is that once they're done, presidents are done, they're usually done now. I mean, Trump wasn't done and never will be probably. Uh, but uh, in this regard. I think that's why you're seeing um, 
him or the the DA's office take the approach to say, okay, we're going to go ahead and follow up on pursuit that might affect him in 2024. I think it won't. I think it was a terrible idea, but it opens the door now for any former president to be brought up by uh, a state if they find something that they want to discuss. Yeah. Could the the state of of, uh, Washington or California um, indict George W. Bush for war crimes. Yes, right. Exactly. Yeah, it's that sort of thing. Yeah, that's 100 percent. The 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 point is that they had even kicked that around and talked yeah. about it. But we weren't in a time period that was uh, kind of as nationally partisan as we're seeing now, where that strong kind of rhetoric immediately goes, OK, yeah, we know it's it's not war crimes, but we're just making a point yeah. to I could see that occur. The, right. Now uh, the local yeah, district attorney of Los Angeles or something like that could yes, yeah, bring yes, the case. Yes, hundred percent. Yes, correct. Or Portland, Oregon, take somebody to to uh, court because they were involved in a Somalian marine exercise. To you see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. It it opens the door for uh, access to everything, and I think that that's the cautionary tale that comes from a New York DA trying to throw his hat in the ring for whatever reason. Yeah. And I would also I'd also add, again, this is my my old man slash historical perspective on it. I mean, one of the Mike and I, you'll 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 be with me on this, too. Um, one of the the most important things that a lot of people said uh, that President Ford did was pardoning Nixon mm-hmm. um, because it avoided exactly this this issue. Um, and and you can argue that, you know, Nixon, if we're if we're arguing about. You know, while there's importance that the the no one is above the law and the rule of law needs to be enforced, the case uh, for prosecuting Nixon is is far 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 stronger yeah. um, than the case uh, for for prosecuting Trump. At least for prosecuting Trump on these charges. Um, now, if someone if, if someone can make the the good you know the allegations about well you know attempted coup or something again, I think that's pretty far fetched. But regardless, um, you know at least there those would be. Uh, important, worthy charges that you would say the rule of law must be uh, followed. No one's above the law. Um, but when it's this ticky tack kind of kind of yeah. stuff, that yeah. makes it look even even worse and and more partisan because there yeah there's no other reason to do it um, than you're just trying to score points. Yeah. I'm wondering though, do you would you agree with my because I I spent a lot of time thinking about why Alvin Bragg would do this. And it seems to me that there are some pretty strong strategic incentives, both for him individually as a Democratic politician who might want to move up at some point, as well as trying to set the table to make it more likely for Trump to win the primary to get into the general. Now, of course, that was I remember that logic from back in 2016 and it backfired horrifically wrong for 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 the country, I would argue. But but do you think that 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 political uh, strategic analysis is uh, from your conservative viewpoint, Jay, uh, how you would see it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And and Ryan, yeah, I mean, Alvin, Alvin Bragg doesn't think he's, you know, Alvin Bragg didn't didn't come to office uh, as the district attorney saying, I'm going to crack down on on uh, companies that that uh, mischaracterize payments, uh, <laughs> sort of like that, uh, you know, real law and order guy. Um, there, was, there was a wonderful little Babylon B bit uh, uh, the other day of uh, uh, Trump uh, carjacks uh, somewhat at gunpoint, uh, Alvin Bragg to add additional misdemeanor charge. Awesome. Um but uh, uh anyway uh if you get it you get it but um so so yeah i, I think it absolutely it's a, a political calculation and he's got the thing of hey he can be the guy who who bagged donald trump and that hurt, helps him locally 
Democrats nationally, uh, some Democrats I think should complain, uh, but Joe Biden isn't going to be one of those complaining. And right now it looks like, so we have, I believe, a pretrial hearing is scheduled for, I think, December, and that would perhaps put the trial tentatively for somewhere in early 2024, though, I, I believe what the strategy seems to be is going to be a lot of delays. And so it could easily, I would expect, this whole thing end up going beyond the 2024 uh, election, which is a long time, you would think. But at least that that's my take on it. Jay, you obviously had a lot more experience with, with courtroom procedures and delaying tactics and that sort of thing. Is that sort of your take as well? Well, yes. And I mean, I, I don't know enough about... Uh... One, I don't do criminal stuff typically. I don't know enough about New York criminal stuff <laughs> or, or uh, you know, District of Manhattan or how quickly they move things. Um, but just by general principle, I would say in court, everything takes a whole lot longer than you think it's going to. Yeah. And Ryan, what do you think about the, the assuming this does drag on into the heart of first the Republican primary season and then perhaps into what, the general election for president? How do you see this helping Trump first in the primaries and then how, affecting him in the in the general election if he is, in fact, the uh, the nominee? Uh, well, the help in the primary is because he can claim he's being uh, targeted by everybody. Um, that's kind of been his message ever since he started running that, you know, everybody's out to get us. And so this kind of gives him um, that platform. I, I think the charge that Bragg has brought up um, suggesting it affected the election outcome um, by paying this to Stormy Daniels. I think it does not have any kind of movement that would uh, change his voting base um, in any way. So I, I see it as a non-impact. Um, if not helping him a little bit. So now I, I, I think he's got the national recognition to go through. Um, and, and the other thing, Mike, and, and both Jay, this is not even the worst thing that he was accused of when he was running for president. And so that's why, <laughs> that's why I'm, I'm, I'm having a hard time with this is because if this was supposed to be the thing to keep him from running in 2024, this is mild yeah. compared to the Scoville range of offenses that he committed while he was just running. Yeah. And, and everybody uh, knew about this in 2016. Anyone else? Jay. I, yes. Everywhere. It was yeah. on the front of every newspaper. So it's not like this is, is brand new news and it's not like anything is being sorted out that the left wouldn't have accused him of and the right wouldn't have defended him for. So I don't, I don't know that there's staying power in this usually. And again, going back to this presidential indictment thing, Holy cow, for the historic gravitas that is going on here, this is not something that matches uh, the level of importance with the charges that were brought. And so I, I think it does nothing but bolster him, really, and give him a target. He can go after New York and, and the woke mafia there who came after him with no charges and see all those little uh, trite phrases that will fit perfectly now. Yeah, yeah. And, and of well, course, again, you know, as Ron pointed out, yeah, uh, Donald Trump paying off a porn star, right? That doesn't sound like him. Right. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, not paying off a porn star. I mean, geez. <laughs> and again, uh, these are minimal compared to other things which have come up both domestically, financially, and business related for him. So I just, I, I think they teed up the wrong ball for sure. Yeah, and, and we should expect, I think, more indictments in different cases for Donald Trump uh, before the before November of 2024. There's that Georgia case, and then there's the the federal issue with the uh, with the classified documents and so forth. So there will most likely, I would say, be more 
substantive indictments to come, though the bar has been set pretty low by, by Alvin Bragg. I don't know. I, I mean, Mike, that's the big question is, does anybody else proceed at this point? Because if I'm sitting in Georgia and I'm going, yeah, I got a call that he wants an, an extra 11,000 votes or what have you. Is that something that can be case closed? Um, iron box. This is what it is. Yes, it's guilt. Or does everybody else now step back that this warning shot or, or the attempt that they tried in New York will take all the other state secretaries of state and everybody else, attorney generals, and, and get them out of that discussion and go, no, we're yeah. not going to touch it because look what happened there. Yeah, I think I think I think Ryan's right on that, that there there is probably the sense of uh, you got one shot. Take, the, yeah. take your best shot. And this is this is far from your best shot. I, I disagree a little bit. I think Ryan, I think Ryan's right in in the Georgia instance maybe but i think that the federal case is likely to be a little more clear cut and strong we mentioned last week i think one of the doc classified documents he says he returned was supposedly found in his desk drawer sort of thing and it's like oh i don't know i put yeah. it underneath the skittles and forgot about it or something but i think that's going to be a lot stronger case but even there i see what you guys are saying that the the charges are not they're not huge charges, right? And so it's not exactly ticky tack, but, but, but yeah, but I, I think there certainly will be more coming. One final thing I wanted to bring up. This is something that hadn't occurred to me, but, uh, actually, uh, it was, I forget, it was mentioned last week that, well, would, would Trump in fact surrender to authorities? And it was suggested that there might actually have been some political advantage for him to not go to New York to stay in Florida and force uh, Ron DeSantis into an uncomfortable position, whether or not he would extradite him. Now, Trump decided not to do that. But I think the argument that the reasoning here is that, well, make make DeSantis kind of either oppose Trump and anger those folks or uh, kind of be on the Trump bandwagon. I think it's actually put even though Trump didn't do that, that's put a lot of Republicans who would perhaps want to challenge Trump like DeSantis. This has put them in an uncomfortable position, I think. So uh, uh, what are your thoughts on that? Would, would that have been something that would have, I don't know, you would have, you would have recommended to him, Jay, as his, not that you do this kind of law, but uh, uh, fight no, it. And, you know. Actually, actually, no, I think, I think he played that correctly. Um, because I, I think DeSantis wins in, in that, if you you run the play on that, DeSantis wins, uh, right? He because here's the thing: um, he would have lost the extradition fight, uh, but DeSantis could could uh, could step up and say, you know what? I think this is a completely bogus indictment. Um, you know, he he could have separated himself from Trump, but still been with Trump. He could have said, this is bogus indictment. It, it uh, violates the rule of law. It's a political prosecution. Uh, I, as Florida governor, uh, am not going to just ex uh, extradite him and allow uh the city of new york to, to harass florida citizens uh they would have gone to court on that desantis would have lost and uh, then desantis would have said hey did it we could um right uh and, and he would have he would have come out as as being supportive of trump uh supportive of of uh, protecting against you know these kind of prosecutions um uh but at the same time trump still gets uh still gets hauled off to new york so i i i think that's how the the, the play would have would have worked out yeah ryan your thoughts on that Oh, it, it would have been the worst thing for democracy ever. Um, I mean, <laughs> it's kind of a joke, but not really. These these most recent times have uh, really kind of um, set federalism on its edge as to who's in charge and who can ignore who and, and who's at whose teeth. 
And so I can't even imagine a, or I can because it's happened in the past, but can you imagine a New York versus a Florida with the governor standing beside a former president, but then there'll also be challengers. I mean, it, it just, it, it would be chaos. Um, I just got to think with these charges for Trump, what's the end goal, right? Is the end goal to influence so many voters from the Republican side that he doesn't have a shot at the nomination? No, probably not. Is it to convict him of a felony so that he can't run for office? Well, no, that probably won't happen either. Um, is it to besmirch his reputation? Well, it's nearly unbesmirchable, not a word, um, but we've we've found it's almost impossible to get anything to stick to Trump because he embraces it. He catches it and goes, yeah, that's me. Um, so I I don't know what their end goal is here because it doesn't look like it will stop anything that it would have been intended to do so. Yeah. I, I think in a way, well, I, I think. I mean, I, I was going to say, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Jake. But I, I think the end, the end goal is just uh, 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 Alvin Bragg's sort of ego, right? Yeah, and that's what it'll boil down to, Jay. Is that we're taking the entire process of the executive office and and not kind of bastardizing it, but um, molding it for someone's individual state goals, um, and and that's so dangerous that you're you know kind of subverting the federal to somebody else's priorities. Yeah. I, I think in, in the end, my sort of disaster scenario, though, it would be it would be something else would be Donald Trump is convicted on federal charges, ends up going to going to prison, but still wins the 2024 presidential Thanks. election, then pardons himself. And then the, can a president pardon himself goes before the Supreme Court and oh, my God, I just hope I'm somewhere else. <laughs> there you go. Oh, man. All right. This is one last. This is just. A yeah, please thing, do. Mike. And this is. This is going to sound silly, but I commented on this years ago that all the reports, um, uh, the uh, Trump's um, uh, paramour was always described as uh, former porn star Stormy Daniels. And I raised the issue back then. Why is the media always calling her former porn star uh, Stormy Daniels? Um, you know, just because she hasn't put out something in a couple of years, we don't say former actress Meryl Streep. We tell uh, you, know, just porn because star. Sure, I get you. Yeah. Okay. Um, but now, uh, now in the the second round, they've they've dropped the former or retired, and I'm just I'm just curious. I I raised it a while back. Um, my my conspiratorial sense was it was trying to, uh, uh you know, make make her seem as it sounds sort of like reformed porn star, uh, yep. Stormy Daniels, right? Um. Uh, but uh, uh, no, I just I'm just I'm just noting it saying. Now they're not saying that anymore. Maybe That's she's got some news. Maybe she's she's put out some new stuff. I, I, we I don't should know, get on IMDb and, you know, see what's what. I, I don't maybe know. That's, so. Maybe that's the thing. Maybe. Um, and as I said before, it was maybe she's just waiting for the right project. Um, but um, there will not be a link no, to just, Stormy just, Daniels those, movies in the show notes. Just, but <laughs> I'm, I'm just I'm always attentive to like little media sort of things like that. So. Yeah, I, no, I think the right, framing right. there is, is clear because, sorry, you could introduce her as small businesswoman yeah. um, <laughs> or, or business owner or individual consultant. Yeah. Or, I mean, you, Filmmaker. You, you, right. Exactly. Yeah. But throwing in porn star, you, you immediately throw it into the gutter and it changes everything. Uh, that brings us to a close, but there's so much that we didn't get to that we will get to on the midweek show like 
a bit an important election in Wisconsin, a big mayoral election in Chicago, some a big transgender policy news, and maybe even some discussion of changing values in the United States and whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. And all of that will be on the midweek show. If you're a supporter, you get that. Uh, if you're not, we hope you'll consider becoming one. Uh, when you become a supporter, you not only get that full midweek show, you get other stuff as well, ad-free versions of everything we put out. Uh, and uh, there's our Discord, which is always a lot of fun and interesting things. So if you're interested, check it out. Go to patreon.com slash politicsguys. If you'd like to support us some other way on Venmo, we're at politicsguys. You can also support the show through PayPal, and you'll find all of our support links in the show notes as well as at politicsguys.com slash support. And if you'd like to get that midweek show, the full show, but you're not in a position to support us financially right now, not a problem. Just send me an email. I'm mike at politicsguys.com and I will get that all set up for you. And regardless of your supporter status, it really does help if you spread the word. And the easiest way to do that usually is just sharing the show through social media, as well as subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on whatever podcast app you're listening to right now. And finally, if you want to get in touch with us for any reason, we love to get listener questions, comments. I mean, that was how, why we talked about the net neutrality thing. You can do that through the Discord if you're a supporter. If not, you can always send us an email, mail at politicsguys.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter, and you'll find links to those in the show notes. And finally, as always, a very special thanks to our executive producers, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, Don Oglesby, and Ivan English. We'll be back with a new episode for you next week. We hope you'll join us.